Todd, would you open in prayer for us? Sure. Hey, Father, we just thank you for this day, God, and just thank you for the blessings you give to us each day, and thank you for life, and, and thank you for life with Jesus, God, and just thank you for that he gives us life, eternal life. Mm -hmm. uh, we accept him as our Savior, and, and we accept you as our Father. And just pray, pray that you bless this time to, to, today in our study and, uh, of Revelation and just uh, help Gavin just to, uh, to say what he's prepared and, and give him uh, the strength to do that to this day. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. Um, one of the things that, that's always interesting with Revelation is uh, there's a lot of... Uh, Discussion. There's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of different uh, ways that people look at it. Um, it's unlike many of the other scriptures because it's still yet to come. Um, and so we don't have the benefit of looking back with 2020 hindsight and looking at a lot of this. Even Nero wasn't the Antichrist? Uh, Nero wasn't the Antichrist. Oh, so, so, uh, was it Hitler? There's no Israel. So, you know, I'm hoping that we have an opportunity to kind of dismiss and, and talk through a lot of the mysticism that surrounds Revelation. Um, you know, everybody has these mystical interpretations of Revelation, and they come up with some wild theories and things like that. But I think if we kind of go back to the basics and we exegete it really well, um, we'll find that Revelation is really founded in the Old Testament. And so... Um, I think that's, a, that's something that I want to do. My approach with this is that John was a, was a Jewish man who was trained in a Jewish culture and wrote to Jewish people using the scriptures that they had at the time. And he was very clear about a lot of things. And I think as we work through them and start to understand them a little bit more, um, things will become less mystical They'll become less weird. But I think we also have to remember that John also looked at something that was way, way ahead of his time. Think about what would happen if John was transported to Pittsburgh today. And how would he describe Pittsburgh? Coming through the, the Fort Pitt tunnels and all of a sudden, in, at night, and all of a sudden he sees Pittsburgh. How would he describe that? Wow. Huh? No, the Steeler loss. Yeah. <laughs> so how would you describe it? So I think sometimes we have to look at the language that he's using and try to try to understand. He's coming from a place where he's doing the best he can based upon what he knows and what he's experienced to describe the things that he's seen. And uh, and so we're gonna we're gonna try to do that in a in a way that that's true to the scriptures and yet same time it's gonna be one of those things that we continue to. Um, Understand that he's he's doing the best he can to describe something that's way way ahead of him, and uh, and I think that's I think that's one of the things we do. Um, one of the things that I, I want to do is is um, I want to just give you just a quick disclaimer. I am not a Revelation scholar, <laughs> but I've studied it a lot. I've read a lot. I've read. Um, I wrote down a list of people that I've read their opinions and their theories on. And it's over 15 different people that I've look, looked at, read their stuff. Um, here's a book right here. Who? Uh, it's an entire book on one verse, Revelation 1:18. So I mean, there is a lot out there that people are doing, and some of it is kind of like 
you get about three quarters of the way through it and you go, nah, <laughs> nah, that's not, not really true to the scriptures. How many of the 15 have the same view? Very few of them. Really? Yeah, very few. And they always had some, some little deviation someplace somewhere. Uh, trying to take a lot of the, the things that a, people, a lot of people agreed on, but also just reading the scriptures myself and relying on the Holy Spirit to try to, try to give us inspiration, I think is the, is the best way to do it. And so as we go forward, there's a lot of people in, in this group, and there's going to be a lot of opinions. There's going to be a lot of people who have uh, read stuff, and they're going to have questions, and, and I'm not saying I know the answers. I'm just saying I'm going to present to you what I believe I see in the scripture. And so as we go through it and we talk about it and we, and we bring up, let's talk about those things. You know, some of them are going to be uh, cut off the wall, and we'll say that's cut off the wall. But some of it is really based in the Scripture. And if we can really get back to what does the Old Testament reference here? Because one of the things we're going to talk about is that John alludes to, he doesn't quote the Scriptures like Paul does. But he alludes to the Old Testament over 500 times. And so we can't look at Revelation and not look at the Old Testament. The crazy thing is, it wasn't until 1912 that the first Gentile writer put together the, the idea that, that the that Revelation had this many Old Testament allusions. An allusion means a reference without quoting, right? And so it's been that long, it took that long for the Gentiles to figure it out. And so there's a lot of, a lot of those types of things that are going on. Um, my opinion and my approach is not foolproof. This is a discussion. Um, and like I said, we're looking back, uh, we're looking forward, not looking back like we do in most of the Bible. Um, here's the approach I want to take, that this is divine truth. It's canonized, it's divine truth. These are real events that have happened or will happen. Um, we'll look at the similarities. Uh, we'll look at the, hopefully the same way that a lot of Messianic Jews look at the scripture, look at this book, because they have a, a much better contextual understanding of the Old Testament. And so I'm going to try to draw some of that out. Just today, <clears throat> or just in, for today, I was spending time, like, how do we demonstrate this, this concept? And just in what we're going to do today, in a few minutes, took me through the book of Obadiah, Joel, 1 Corinthians, Acts, and Isaiah. And that was just to make one point. And so it's woven all through the scriptures. And, uh, and hopefully we can do that. So specifically, the most uh, commonly used ones are Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. But like I said, Obadiah, Joel... Um, a lot of the minor prophets uh, are tied in to a lot of this prophetic Zechariah, uh, some of those things. Uh, we're going to do our best to exegete Revelation appropriately, which means we're going to take it literally. We're going to take a literal approach, which doesn't mean that everything in there is literal. It means that the literal approach means you take it literally unless it's obviously something like a colloquialism, a metaphor, symbolism, or something like that. That's, that's a literal style of interpretation um, that we're going to take. We're not going to do a mystical style. We're not going to do a dogmatic style. We're not going to do any of those types of things. So we're going to just take what's called a literal style of interpretation. Um, we should note that Revelation is come to us fifth hand, right? 
And so we know that, that that comes from God the Father to Jesus, to the messenger, to John, and then to the believers. And so that's a, that's a process, but at the same time, because it's the Word of God and it's true, uh, it's still uh, going to be accurate. And so we're going to go from there. So the word revelation really mean is uh, apocalypsis, which uh, anytime you see me use a, a Greek word or a, a Hebrew word, I'm always going to put the Strong's number behind it. Um, so the number you see behind it is the Strong's reference. So if you want to go and look it up, I welcome you to. In fact, I encourage you to. Uh, if you get the notes ahead of time and you see those numbers, go and look them up in a, in a thesaurus or, or, uh, or something like that. Uh, you know, if you don't have a place to go and look them up, uh, one of my favorite online places is Blue Letter Bible. Um, so you can go and, and you can pull up that verse. You can see the Greek words. You can see the Strong's number attached to it. You can see the meaning, where it's used, those types of things. So uh, that's, that's another option. Um, when we talk about the word apocalypse, which is where we uh, get our word from, uh, it means catastrophic or destructive ending. But in this case, it's more unveiling of a mystery. To take the cover off is what this word means. To take the cover off or to unveil. And um, we often say, and it's defined often in Bibles as the revelation of John, but it's not. It's the revelation of God to John. And uh, I will tell you that I have a soapbox that I'm pretty adamant about. It's revelation not revelations. There is one revelation to John from God. So uh, I, if you say revelations, I'm, you're going to watch me <coughs> twitch. <laughs> so I'll just be honest with you, okay? Um, so one of the things that I want to do in just a demonstration of, of how we're going we're gonna to run this and we're going to uh, try to work this thing out is I want to I just do a little bit of um, uh, looking at Isaiah. Uh, I asked if you had time to read Isaiah 1 through 4, and uh, so maybe open your Bibles there, and uh, we can go to that. Um, Whenever you do a Bible study, whenever you read a Bible, you always do the five W's first who, what, where, when, why, but I thought we'll do this first just to have some fun and kind of jump into it and kind of give a flavor of, of how this is going to work. So <clears throat> when we look at um, Isaiah 1, um, it's really interesting that in Isaiah 1 through 10, that's God's indictment against Israel. You know, this is what you have done. Um, the Lord speaks, uh, I have reared and brought you up, but you have revolted against me, verse 2. And it goes on and he, he lays out, uh, basically in the first nine verses, the indictment. And then uh, in 11, 10 or 11 through 20, then he says, here's the instructions to you. And, um, and then from there, um, he starts to recap what's happening and why what's going to happen will be. And, um, and so he lays that out a little bit. And then Zion, uh, and then he talks about Zion will be redeemed. And we'll go from there. So we'll jump into verse chapter 2. So chapter 1 is kind of an overview. And chapter 2 really is, um, or let's go back to verse 28 real quick. 128. So this is the theme of Isaiah. Uh, but transgressors and sinners will be crushed altogether. And those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. 
So basically, anybody who opposes God will be crushed. That's the theme of Isaiah. And now Isaiah is broken down into eight, what, what critics call scrolls. There are eight scrolls within Isaiah. But the main purpose, the main idea here over and over again is that Isaiah is saying, if you oppose me, I will crush you. And I'm going, and if you oppose my, my people and you cause them to be downtrodden, especially the poor, I'm really going to come after you. And so this is what Isaiah is saying in this. So we jump to chapter 2, and one of the things that we look at is in verse 1 through 4, the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So he's talking about Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. What's the mountain of the Lord? It's Jerusalem, right? It's where Jerusalem is. And the mountain of the Lord, uh, the, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. And it will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. So he's giving us a picture that in, in, the, in the final days, think about one through four. This is a picture of the millennium. The thousand year reign. So one through four is really a picture of, of Isaiah telling us what this looks like. And he said, all of the people will come to the mountain of the Lord. They're going to come to Jerusalem. Um, and many people will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of, of the God of Jacob, uh, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So again, it's talking about this is coming from Jerusalem. Everybody's going to turn to Jerusalem. The, the entire world is going to be driven by God in Jerusalem on the, from the house of the Lord. Um, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares. Now that's the opposite of what we read elsewhere, right? They, they said they, were, they will uh, make their plowshares into swords and this is the, res the response because there no longer will need be swords because this is the millennium. This is the thousand year reign. And, uh, and in their spears into pruning hooks. And nations will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. And so those first four verses are really a picture of the millennium. And then Isaiah does this jump. And he goes back and he says, okay, this is how it's going to happen. This is how it's going to happen from 5 to 22. And so he says, uh, let us walk in the light of the Lord, for thou hast abandoned thy people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influence from the east. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. And it goes on and he talks about um, a lot of uh, this stuff. And let's go to 18. I'm just going to jump down to 18. We could spend all night just on these four chapters, but let's go down to 18. <clears throat> and he says, And the idols will completely vanish. And other the things that men are worshiping instead of God are going to be destroyed. Right? And men will go into their caves of, of the rocks and the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord but the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth tremble, in that day men will cast away the moles and the bats and the idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. And so somebody uh, go over to Revelation 6. Go to Revelation 6, verse 15 through 17. Somebody read that for us.
What verses? 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Right. And so Revelation really does reinforce this whole concept of, of what does the tribulation look like? Because this is the tribulation period that he's talking about in verses 5 through 22. And, um, and so he goes in 21, In order to go into the caves and the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty, He rises up to make the earth tremble. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For thy, why should he be esteemed? In other words, they're saying, look, the terror of the Lord, the day of the Lord, which Obadiah first brought out, called it the day of the Lord, which is the one time most terrifying day um, and period that God is going to have because it will be unlike any other day, any other experience that we've ever experienced. And that's more of the great tribulation. Um, I will say this as a kind of a caveat. I make a distinction between the tribulation and the great tribulation. The great tribulation is that seven years that, that Revelation talks about. So if I'm talking about the tribulation, I'm, I'm actually talking about the age of shame, which we'll get to in just a minute. But, but the great tribulation is, is what the scriptures talk about is the seven years. So it's just my, my phraseology to help determine, to help understand that, that process. Okay, so then uh, we go into verse our chapter 3, and... Um, and I think the first four verses of this are pretty interesting. For behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of the fifty and the honorable men, the counselor and the expert artisan, the skillful enchanter, and I will make, them, I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them. In other words, he's saying in that day, everything is going to go away. All of our riches, all of our supply, all of our food, all of our leaders, all that's going to go away to the fact that it's going to just leave children to lead us. And that's kind of a scary place to be, right? And so, and then it goes on, and I will make mere lads out of, uh, um, and verse 5, and people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our ruler. It's mocking leadership. Like, they're mocking the leaders. Because this is like, well, okay, you have something we don't, so you're the leader. And it's like, okay, you know. Um, and the ruins will be under your charge. In other words, we're going to blame you for everything. So, you didn't want to be leader, but we're going to make you leader. You don't want to be it, and nobody wants to be a leader, but we're going to blame you anyway. And so there's going to be a lot of accusations, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of uh, that type of thing. And on that day, will he protest saying, I will not be your healer, for in my house there's neither bread nor cloak, and you should, you should not appoint me ruler of the people. People aren't going to want to be the leader anymore. We're getting to that point where good people don't want to be leaders. They don't want to be national leaders, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing some of this even today. <clears throat> For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen, 
because their speech and their actions are against the Lord. To rebel against His glorious presence, the expression of their face bears witness against them. And they display their sin like Sodom, and they do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. So can you imagine a day when people would say what's right is wrong and wrong is right? Can you just imagine that? I mean, and they would display their, their sin in public and it wouldn't bother them at all? We so, do have a child in the White House. <laughs> so, I mean, this is, this is interesting when you really understand what he's trying to say. Yeah. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him. For what he deserves will be done to him. Oh, my people, the oppressors are children, and women will rule over them. Oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray, and confuse the direction of your path. In other words, nobody who's leading you is going to lead you in the right direction. They're going to lead you in the wrong way. And they're going to take you down wrong paths. And, uh, and there's not going to be anybody decent to rule. Um, And then, let's jump to verse uh, 15. Uh, well, let's keep going. 13. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters the judgment with the elders and princes of His people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The, plound, the plunder of the poor is in your house. In other words, you are taking advantage of the poor. You're oppressing the poor. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. There's one thing that God hates, and it's in the scripture over and over again, is that people would oppress the poor. The poor in spirit, the poor in economy, that it, would people take advantage of them. I mean, what was the, what was the, the um, uh, story that Nathan told David? He said, he had a rich man and a poor man, and the poor man had one lamb, and the rich man took the lamb, right? And he... And he and he said, you're that, you're that guy. Remember that story? Because God hates those who oppress the poor. And so it goes on and it talks about, you know, just more and more of the, of the, uh, of the destruction of what's going on. And uh, let's go to 17. And therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In other words, he's going to start making people bald. And, uh, and they're going to be scabbed. And there's going, to be, there's going to be all these things that are taking place in people's bodies. And in that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, and crescent ornaments. What is a crescent ornament? Moon. Crescent moon? What is that? The Muslim symbol. The Muslim symbol. And in that day, he will crush the crescent ornament, which is on every mosque, right? Well, there's a, there's a nice one. Dangling earring, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, uh, hand uh, mirrors, underwear. He's going to take away our underwear. Um, er turbans and veils. Now come back and that instead of the sweet perfume there will be putrefaction. People are going to stink. I mean this is, this is the picture that's being painted of the tribulation. That, that this, this stuff is going to happen. That, that leaders are going to fail. That no one's going to want to be leaders. That, that the things that we have put our, our faith in and our hope in are going to be destroyed. And they're not going to be uh, uh, they're not going to be uh, 
good. The, verse 25, your men will fall by the sword and your mighty ones in battle and their gates will lament and mourn. The des and deserted she will sit on the ground. In other words, this is just going to be, um, a tribulation is going to grind them down. It's going to grind and grind and grind and grind and take away everything that we have so that we hide in caves to hide from the wrath of God. That's a pretty vivid picture. And so if you read this, you were getting that. What I like is four. For seven women will take hold of the man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread, wear our own clothes, and only let us be called by your name. Take away our approach. Because of the, the battles that take place, there's, only going to be, there's going to be seven women for one man because of the death of so many men. Right? And, that, that, and they're saying, Look, we'll pay our own way. We're just, we're just looking for a husband. And that day, the branch, is that capitalized in your Bible? Why? Because it's a military term of, of God, uh, of Jesus, in his military position. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be a pride and adornment of the survivors. So, let's go, somebody go over to... Um, Matthew 24, 13. Because in verse 3, it says, And it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. So you should put Matthew 24, 13 by it. Somebody read that for us. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Right. So he's talking about at the end of the tribulation, those who survive shall be saved. That's... You know, it's not to the end of our life. It's to the end of the tribulation. You know, you get into Matthew 24 and 25, you start talking about those end times. And he's talking about this. He's referencing this. And so, uh, Then the Lord was washed away, the filth of the daughters of Zion, and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst, from the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole area. Now this is interesting. The Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies... A cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of the flame fire by night. For over all the glory will be the canopy. What does that remind you of? Children of Israel. Hmm? The God leading them in the wilderness. Right. So back to Exodus 16, right? A cloud by day and a, and a pillar of fire by night. And yet, in that final day, when we come back, because this is about the millennium again. Chapter 4 is about the millennium again. And so he's saying, after the battle, after the tribulation, after the fight, there's not going to be very many people left, but those who survive, they will be saved. And there will be such a great cloud over the temple that it will be like a cloud and a pillar of fire. And it goes back to verse uh, 1 through 4, where it talks about the idea of of the millennium, and, it, and all the peoples will come to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount. And that will be the place where we worship Jesus. So, does that make sense? Is that, we kind of went through a lot of it real quick, but I wanted to just give you a sense of like how much Isaiah, you know, when you talk about Isaiah, Jesus himself quoted or alluded to 47 chapters of the 66 in Isaiah. Did you know that? There's something in 47 of the 66 chapters that Jesus himself alluded to. I always wondered how 
when it says like all the people will go to Jerusalem, like is this spiritual? Like I'm <coughs> thinking like literally all the people. There isn't room in Jerusalem for all the people. Mm-hmm. But they'll turn their hearts towards Jerusalem. So that's why like it's a spiritual. It's I believe it's literal. it's they will turn to like the UN, which is in New York. The UN of the world then will be God, mm-hmm. and it will be in on on the, the mountain of the Lord. Yeah, and everybody will look to that. So I think that's what they're they're looking for. That will there be no leadership left until God takes over in that that millennium. And so one of the things I wanted to do was just kind of like look at just a quick um, overview. Just a quick prophetic, using what Isaiah said. Now, I don't have many of these, so maybe just take one and pass them down. I got 10 or 10 or 12 of them there, so you know, maybe pass them out and share them or something like that. But um, maybe one every third person or something. Take a picture. Yeah, that's a good idea. And uh, so I wanted to, basically what it's going to be is this. And I thought I'd just do it this way. Yes, I'm not going to use a whiteboard often. This is the one and only time, probably. So, here's the idea. So, can you see this? So, can anybody see that back there? Yeah, we can. Okay. So, we're going to start with Jesus here, right? And so, Jesus was crucified on the cross. Uh, Three days later, he rose again. And then, 40 days, um, he ascended. Right? And then, uh, and then, about seven to ten days later, the Holy Spirit came. And uh, that's, a, that's Dove, by the way, so work with me here. That's the best I can do. I'm not a, an artist. And so, what happened when the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2? What did that begin? That begin, began the church age. And the scripture alludes to the fact that it began the tribulation. But it also began the age of shame. Now we're going to go delve into the age of shame here in just a minute. But it began the age of shame for Israel. And so the church age will continue until 1 Thessalonians 4 when he will show up in the clouds, right? Blow a trumpet and he will call the church home. Right? The church will then go up to heaven with him where we get to party. And eat. And eat. <laughs> but then begins, and it doesn't say how soon after that. It could be decades. could be immediate. We don't know. But then the great tribulation begins. Nothing in Scripture that I can find says, and immediately the, tribula- the great tribulation would begin. The seven years. Now, what would be the purpose of the great tribulation? What do you think the, great, the purpose of the great tribulation would be? To reach the Jews. I agree. And I will try to prove that to you over the next few weeks. That the tribulation is to get the Jews to bow their necks. They're sti- we call them a stiff-necked people. To bow to Christ. To bring them together. So here's, here's the point I want to make. And I don't, I don't want to be rude about this, so please don't take offense. But God's people is Israel. We're not. In fact, Paul at one point says, don't get so haughty, people, 
you were grafted into the root that's already there. We're not a replacement for Israel. In fact, if you have a replacement theology, I would challenge you on that. Because if you read that the church has replaced Israel, much of the prophetic words in Isaiah and Joel and even some of the things that Paul wrote no longer work. They just don't work. But if you look at this and you say God's heart is for Israel, God's heart is for the Jew. You know what we are? You know what the Gentile church is? We are a way to make them jealous. And I'll prove that to you tonight. We are a way to make them look at this and see the church of people who believe God are taken up into heaven and look at them and go, look at that. I want that. I want to be with God. They saw God. All, the whole world will see God when He returns, right? And you know there's like two parts of the return, right? There's the initial where He never doesn't come down. He just comes and He calls the church up. And then later He returns with the church. And so we have this church age until Jesus comes and He calls the church up into heaven. We begin to party, but then shortly thereafter, Israel has to go through the tribulation. All those who have not received Christ go through the tribulation. Now, if you have, a, and, 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 and I know this is my, my view of it, I'm just being honest about it, and if you don't have this view, I'm not going to knock you, but it seems to me that if the whole point of bringing the church up to heaven is to make Israel look at that and go, wait a minute, what's going on? Why would you believe in a mid- or a post-trib ascension? The idea is to get Israel to, be, to look at us and go, wait, that doesn't make sense. Why did they get to go and we didn't? We're supposed to be God's people. Well, there's a very good reason. We're going we're gonna to go through that in just a second. So we look at this and we say the church was brought up. We're here. Then the tribulation is going on. And so... Those who are left are going through the tribulation. That's also when the 144,000 who were sealed by God, you realize that, right? They were sealed by God, that nothing can happen to them until He removes that seal. And we'll talk about that later too. And then Israel gets into a place where it can no longer defend itself. The whole world starts coming against it. The whole world is ready to destroy it. And just before it's destroyed, God in his 11th hour, I hate the 11th hour, so <laughs> in his 11th hour, shows up with the church. And it's so anticlimactic, right? You see all the, the battle, they're coming together. And so what does the scripture say that God does, and it's over? He speaks, and it's done. And it's all over. And that point, Israel age of shame is over. The age of shame is over. And so the Jews hopefully will have turned at that point and they will believe in God and will begin the thousand year millennial reign. And then after that, then Satan will be released. There will be judgment for everybody including those who were there for the thousand year millennial reign. There will be judgment and then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And eternity will follow from there. Does this make sense? 
perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to just kind of give a quick overview of what this looks like. Now, lots of people have done lots of things, but I think one of the things that I wanted to come back to was why the tribulation? The tribulation scares people. Oh, I don't want to go through that. What if we have to go through it? I don't think we're going to have to. Mm-hmm. Because that's not the purpose. The purpose is not to purify the church. The purpose is to get Israel, to get the Jew, to bow unto God. And so, let's take a quick look. I'm going to slide this back by you. And it, I will try to send out the, the, the picture form in email. So if you didn't get one, that's fine. Uh, I'll send it out again. Um, I just didn't get it done until today. So, any questions about that kind of like prophetic overview timeline? All right, good. So, sure. Um, in um, Isaiah two twenty, when he talks about uh, men will throw away the rodents and the bats, or idols of silver and gold, the Muslims don't do that, but the Hindus do. Yeah. You know, they worship snakes and right, monkeys and all of that stuff is going to be crushed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, Let's go back to Isaiah uh, 2. Go to verse 18. Did we, did we read Revelation 6? Did I have you read that yet? 15 and 17. Yes, we did. Okay, so that's good. So let's keep going. Um, so here's the, here's the concept here. <clears throat> now hang in there with me because this is convoluted. It took me forever to figure this out. Um, and I'm... I'm Reading a lot of different things. So we're, we're, hold on just a second. I'll tell you in a second. So we started with Jesus and he died. And then I talked about the fact that when the Holy Spirit came, it began the church age for those who believed. But it began the age of shame for Israel. Now, why is that? Okay, if we go to Joel 2, go to Joel 2. I'm going to try to walk you through this and hopefully it makes sense. So Joel 2, we know that in Acts 2, uh, Peter references Joel 2, right? And he he references uh, the the part we remember as Gentile believers. And I'm really trying to get us to think more like Jewish, Messianic Jews. I want us to really understand how they look at this. And that's where I'm really trying to push this a little bit. And we know in verse 28, and they will come about after this, they will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even uh, on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit on them in these days, right? So we know that. But what's that in reference to? That's in reference to, go back to verse 18. Go back to verse 18. This is where deliverance is promised to Israel. It says then. What's then what? After after Israel goes through the the crushing and they repent. Right? A future day of judgment. And they repent. It says then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. 
and then I will never again, this is the key phrase, and I will never again make you a reproach, a shame among the nations. That's what that word means, a shame among the nations. So there's a, there, it's indicating that there was a shame, right? So go to Acts 2. And so what was, what was Peter saying at that point? Peter was saying, um, he said, what you have heard, what you have seen is the fulfillment of what Joel had spoken. Where you Verse 16. And he said, this is the fulfillment of what Joel had spoken. This is the beginning of what Joel is speaking. That we need to repent in order for our shame to be eliminated. But this is the beginning of the age of shame for Israel. Why? Because this is what Israel did. God came to save Israel first. Israel rejected Christ. Crucify him, crucify him, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, then I will, I will find another to make you jealous so that you will turn to me. Go to Romans 10. <coughs> we as Gentiles... <laughs> Read Romans 10, thinking it's talking about us. When in fact... Oh, jeez. Okay, come back. Wow. Wow. That's important. But what he's really talking about is he wants all, including the Jews, to turn to him. And then in, verse, in chapter 11... Um, Romans 10? Romans, yeah, sorry, sorry. Romans 11, uh, 11. And this is where he lays it out. He says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, that they may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has now come to the Gentile to make them jealous. That God chose the church, and primarily the Gentile church, to make the Jews jealous. That he brought salvation to the Gentiles to help make the Jews jealous because his heart is still for Israel. His, his heart, and that's why the church will be taken up before the tribulation, and that's why the Jews will go through the tribulation, non-believing Jews, and as a result, they will turn their hearts to God, and just about when the point that they're going to be destroyed, he'll show up, and we get to show up with it. Amen? So go to 1 Corinthians 14. Now, 12, 13, and 14 are about what? 12, 13, and 14 are about what? Gifts of the Spirit. Gifts of the Spirit, right? 13 is not a standalone. 13 is how do you utilize the gifts that I've given you, right? 
12 is these are the gifts. 13 is this is how you use them. 14 is this is how they're applied. Right? Go to 14 and go to um, 20. Verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be bathed, but in your thinking be mature. And in the law it is written, by the men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to the people even, even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but for the unbeliever. But prophecy is for a sign, not to the unbelievers, but to those who believe. 21 is a quote. Quote from what? Isaiah, Isaiah 28. If you go to look in Isaiah 28, oh, look who's here. Um, let's let's keep your finger in 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 uh, in First Corinthians and and go over to Isaiah 28. you look at Isaiah 28 and you spend some time reading it, what you'll find is that, and I didn't mark the verse, so it's going to take me a second. 11 and 12. Uh, yes, thank you. Verse 10, for he says, order by order, order on order, line upon line, line on line, a little here, a little there. In other words, he's saying, I have to spoon feed you this because you're not getting it. You don't get it. I'll give you just a little bit of the time so you can figure this out. Indeed, he will speak to his people through stammering lips and foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is response, but they would not listen. And so what he's saying is, here, I am going to give something to somebody and they're going to speak to you in a foreign language that you do not understand. And you're going to see the people who love me speak in languages that you do not understand and it's going to be a shame to you because this should have been you but you rejected me so I'm going to give it to somebody else and they're going to speak in a language that you don't understand in front of you and therefore it should shame you and what did go back to 1 Corinthians 14 and so what is Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 14 but this is the fulfillment of that that he has given and poured out the gifts, he has poured out tongues, he has poured out these things, prophecy and tongues, all of this as a shame to Israel. That's not me. That's 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 Paul telling them, look at look at Isaiah 28. This is the problem. We are now entering an age of shame because what the Gentiles are getting, what the church is getting, was meant for us. And this is not, and we didn't get it. And so that's why when you look at this and you say, the Gentile church goes, ooh, the gifts of the Spirit. Well, they're not for today. Well, yes, they are, because they're there to bring shame to the Jews so that they'll bow their head and bow their knee to Jesus. Why would it, why would it only be for a little while if it wasn't there for purpose do you think the Jews are shamed already? Yeah. No, not yet. But this is what God said, 
And this is what Paul said, that he gave it as an instruction, and he's identifying the fact that Isaiah 28 is saying that this is for the shame, and we're now living, we're beginning that shame. That God has fulfilled what he said he would do in, in Joel, he's do, fulfilling what he said in Isaiah, and that we have entered the, the season, the, this age of shame for Israel. And it's going to take the tribulation that we read about in Isaiah to bring them to a place where they will bow their knee to Jesus. Does that make sense? It's sad. It is. It is. But I think it, it tells us a little bit about the, the, the plan God has, right? It's a little bit about the plan that God has that, that, that we in the church shouldn't be fearing the tribulation. <clears throat> that we also understand that as Gentiles, the church, we're there so that Israel can look at us and go, huh, how come they got stuff we don't? We're supposed to be God's people. And so, does that make sense? And so I think this is how I want to try to take a look at Revelation. Like, pull in the Scriptures. Like, what season are we in today? I mean, people ask all the time, is what's going on in Israel part of Revelation? Is it? Is it the fulfillment of part of Revelation? It's the beginning. It's the beginning, isn't it? It, it has to be. I mean, I mean, doesn't everything in the process kind of work towards this? Mm -hmm. And it's not just what's happening in <laughs> Israel. It's what's happening across the world with sin and, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. Calling what's good, bad, yeah, bad, good. Yeah. Right. So it's not like, being afraid of their own, not being afraid of, or ashamed of their own sin. Yeah. Right. All that's true. But I would challenge you. I believe that what we're in is not the fulfillment of what Revelation says, I think we're in the we're we're seeing the fulfillment of Obadiah, and I would really encourage you to go back and read Obadiah this week, because what it talks about is that Israel, God will raise up a battle, and through that battle will restore the lands of Israel to itself. Because when you look at Revelation. One of the things I hope you see over and over again is that it isn't just about a spiritual condition. It's about a land. That God wants to restore a land. And when you look at Obadiah, he talks about, you know, there will be this battle because Edom, who were the Edomites, who were Esau's descendants, right, didn't protect Israel's backside when they were attacked. And so as a result, they will forfeit the Negev which is the land of Edom. They will forfeit that. And then also they're going to they're gonna forfeit the lands east. Um, well, and then they're going to... They were destroyed in, in AD 70. The temple was destroyed. Yes, right. But I think Obadiah had given us this prophecy that these lands were going to be restored to Israel. And yet, what are the lands of the Negev? Gaza Strip. West Bank. West Bank is Ephraim. And Manasseh, he talks about those are going to be restored. I would, I would encourage you to go back and read Obadiah and look and see if that's not maybe the first part of where we are. Does that lead into, as John was saying, does that lead into Revelation? Absolutely. But I think, I think we can look and see what's happening in Obadiah. And how many of us have ever studied Obadiah? 
You know, I can't say that I spent a whole, oh, good for you, yes. No. <laughs> so, you know, but if you go back and you look at it, it has a lot to say, I think, about where we are right now. Now, a lot of people have said, oh, you know, this, we're in the end times and this is going to be the end times. Well, in World War I, they thought that was the end of the world. People stopped having babies. People committed suicide. People sold off everything. They just sat down and waited for the Lord to return. Well, obviously, there was World War One, World War Two. Now we're heading for World War Three, right? So, you know, we have to be careful about trying to assign a time because God said you wouldn't know the time, right? We're it's just good. anxious. Yeah. <laughs> we're out of here. I want that new body. <laughs> so, anyway, so that's uh, uh, so let's just talk about now that we've kind of done that. How much time? Oh, I've got a few minutes. Okay, good. So. Let's just talk a little bit about the five W's when it comes to Revelation. You guys read through this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time unless you have questions. But anytime you read a Bible, you really a Bible book, a book in the Bible, you really need to, to ask these questions to really kind of set the, the platform for or the the um, foundation for what you're reading. Now, who wrote it? Um, was, it was John wrote it. He said, "I, John, have wrote this." Right? But what John? Lots of Johns. And so, um, the question is, was it John the Apostle? And we know from history that Polycarp, who knew John, um, and, he, and Irenaeus, who was his disciple, said that John said he wrote it. And so we have, that's as good as, a, as an eyewitness, so to speak. And so we're going we're gonna, to, you know, the church has typically taken and said, yes, John wrote it. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that it's John the Apostle that wrote it? Why is that going to influence our way of looking at Revelation? Because he was with Jesus. Right. Right. And so John's reaction, especially in chapter 1 and chapter 2, John's response to the being that stood before him, and I'm just going to say that for right now, should tell us a lot about who that was if John was actually the one that's, that he, he called himself the one Jesus loved, right? And so that's going to make it in, it's going to impact the way we look at who was standing before him. Does that make sense? So who is important? Who was it written to? To those who were dispersed. To believers and Jews. Um, chapters 2 and 3 talk about the seven churches. Um, he was not writing to a specific person. He was writing to, the, God told him to write to the churches and then to be dispersed. So if you pull out your map and you look at that, you can see the seven churches and he does, he, he, he writes the letters to them in order going clockwise. Right? And so he goes in order and he addresses each of the churches in, and what country is this now, Mike? Turkey. Turkey, very good. So this would be considered Turkey, but these seven churches lived in, and, and were in these areas, and Jesus addressed them in a, counter, a clockwise fashion. Then it was to come back to Ephesus, and then it was to be dispersed to the rest of the, of, the, of the Jews. We should note this thing, and I, I know you guys have read this. Um, that's one of the problems with writing everything down. You guys read it, and then you don't need me to tell you about it. So... <laughs> <laughs> the whole idea of the Jews and Gentiles worship together. 
and uh, in the first century for the most part because that was where God was. And so they worshiped together. And so God said, and, and it wasn't until later that the Gentiles really added the, the word church. Before that it was ecclesia or ecclesia, whichever way you want to pronounce it, I don't care. So basically meaning, you know, Jesus said, I will build my own ecclesia. I will build my own ecclesia. And what you, if you just come away remembering that these three components are important for an ecclesia, you know, uh, a lion's club, a shriners, all those are, would be considered ecclesias today. But basically they have a group of people, of similar thinking people, gathered together for a specific purpose. That's the first thing. They're, they have a written set of guidelines or instructions. We do. It's called the Bible. Right? Uh, and it has a governmental structure. And so, what is that? That's the three major components of any ecclesia. And so they were gathered together. They would meet in the synagogues. They started to see all this influx of Gentiles coming in after the, uh, the, uh, the church age started. And, um, and so why didn't they continue to worship together? The first reason is because they felt like they were being overrun by Gentiles. <laughs> there were just a lot of Gentiles coming in. And then the Jewish leaders became jealous and they forced the Christians out. Um, Sadducees and the Pharisees made up the Sanhedrin. Um, in John 5, it talks about the fact that they had already uh, uh, rejected him. In John 11, we know that they were going to kill him and Lazarus, right? They were going to kill him and Lazarus. Why? Why Lazarus? He was proof of a miracle. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. people were getting saved. And who, who were the primary people in who made up the Sanhedrin? But they were called Sadducees. 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 And Sadducees didn't believe in what? They did not believe in resurrection. So Lazarus standing there was very much a part of that process. And I know we talked about this in your group, but some of these people weren't there. So why did Jesus wait four days to come and raise Lazarus? So they wouldn't he just wasn't actually dead? Okay. Go ahead. Because they believe the spirit would linger for about three days and not really be dead. So the fourth day was a done deal. Right. So according to Jewish mythology or teaching, on the fourth day they were really dead. They were decomposing, they were dead. And so Jesus waited to the fourth day to show the resurrection was real and not just a, not something they could brush off and say, oh, he wasn't really dead, like you were saying. And so that concept... So why did the Sadducees want to get rid of Lazarus? He's proof of resurrection, right? And so um, in Mark 15, 10, when Jesus stands before Pilate, we see uh, it says, For he knew the chief priests had handed him over because of envy, or in the CEV it says because of jealousy. And, uh, and so he knew why they brought Jesus to him. They were jealous. And uh, they were jealous that people were starting to follow Jesus and not, and not them. And so uh, that's a, a concept here again where we see jealousy entering into the picture, right? Jesus was crucified because of jealousy. The people of the church were expelled because of jealousy. And yet God is going to use us to make Israel jealous. 
And so there's an interesting there's an interesting process there that you have to kind of look at. Does that make sense? God says, I am a jealous God. I am a jealous God, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That yeah. was the bell on top. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. says. Yeah. He yeah. says, I'm a jealous God. Have no other gods before me. Right. Right. And Israel did. And that's why he turned to the church. That's why he turned to, to another people who would come to know him. And so when was it written? Most scholars uh, uh, say it was written around 90 A.D., um, some people, you know, because of the destruction of the temple in AD 70, John never mentioned it. I don't think it was a big deal by 20 years later because they didn't need the, the temple for sacrifice, right? It just wasn't that big a deal. They realized that it wasn't necessary anymore. He'd have been pretty old, though. <coughs> huh? He'd have been pretty old, though. Yeah, how old do you think he was? 90. 110, something like that. Was John older than John was the youngest. He was probably a, a teenager during Jesus' time. And so... Well, most people think he was around 90, in his early 90s. And so that would have been, you know, pretty old guy, especially for that age, right? Um, now, some people say that a lot of the references in Revelation are to Nero. And you guys know that there was Nero and Domitian, right? These were two of the, the, the leaders that hated the Christians. And so Nero blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians. And there was... Um, I think it was interesting that when you find out why, you know, the, they persecuted the Christians, right? We all, we all see those, those films where, you know, Gladiator, where the Christians are being persecuted and they're being thrown in and stuff like that. But did you ever wonder why you don't see the Jews being thrown in? And I thought it was interesting as I, as I dug into this a long time ago. One of the things is that they, the Roman Empire demanded Caesar worship. That worship that he had to worship Caesar as a god. But the Jews, because of the uprisings they had against things like that, and they had multiple uprisings in those types of things. In fact, the biggest one was in AD 6. And, uh, and Jesus references that in, in a couple of the, of the parables that we see. Um, but that uprising led the Caesars to say, okay, you don't have to worship us, but you do have to pray for our benefit. Pray for our good. But when the Christians came along, they said, oh, it's just another sect of Judaism. And the Christians said, no, 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 we're not, we're not. And they go, okay, good, then you have, to, you have to worship Caesar. And they're like, oh, no, we're going to do that either. So they got persecuted. So it was sort of like they honored God, but they ended up losing their life for it. And so that's kind of an interesting uh, side note that I hope you guys saw. Um, and so we go back to uh, Paul. Uh, I'm sorry, Paul. We go back to uh, John. And so Polycarp again enters into this. And Polycarp has in some of his writings that John said that he wrote it during the reign of Domitian. Now Domitian was, was, the, was the Caesar during that time. Uh, it is said that, you know, by Tertullian and some of the others that Domitian tried to kill uh, John but was unable to do it. He tried multiple ways to kill John, including uh, boiling him in oil. And apparently, while he was being boiled in oil, he was preaching the gospel to to go John to the mission. Awesome. Yeah, and he couldn't kill him, so he finally said exile him. So they sent him to Patmos, which was a 
a Roman um, uh, prison, right? And there's no way to get back from there unless you could swim over 35 miles in the water uh, and shark-infested waters, things like that. So it's in the Aegean Sea, um, and it was just off the, the coast. So um, some of those some of those backgrounds. Uh, one of the things that I did make point of here is that in Revelation they talk about Babylon, right? Um, and Babylon, remember, we're talking about Judea here. Judea and Jerusalem over and over again. We're talking about the Jews, that not the Samaritans, which were the upper ten tribes, but they were the Judean and the Benjamites and the, and the ones that were considered pure uh, Israelites, right? And so who, who conquered? Assyria conquered the northern kingdom and made the Samaritans, right? Because they took those ten tribes and they dispersed them and they intermarried and stuff. But who over who conquered Israel? Judea, I mean. Who conquered Judea? Babylon. Babylon. And so that was 600 years before this. But it was still fresh in their minds. And they, Paul knew that Rome would um, retaliate if they called them out. That's what they were afraid of. In fact, Jesus knew that in one of his parables, you know, when he says, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, render under God what is God's. That was a whole trap to get him to speak against Rome. Therefore, they could destroy him and kill him. That was part of the trap that says right there in the beginning of that story. And they came to trap him. And so when you look at that, what, is the, what are they trying to do here? Um, they're trying to make sure that they can't take away this writing and they can't say you're speaking against Rome which they could punish them all for, all the churches so he uses Babylon as a, a code name and they all know it's Rome it's all, they all know it's Caesar because they understood the history of what Babylon did to them in conquering them so they use that, that symbolism when they're talking about Rome in this particular case does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Are we doing okay? Okay. Um, we talked about Patmos. That's where he wrote it. Um, why? What is Revel Why is Revelation there? Somebody, somebody, open their Bible and read Revelation one and uh, one through three. So we actually will get to some of the verses in the in the book. Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep these, those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So, in verse 1, he talks about the fact that he wants to show us what, what's going to happen, but don't be afraid. But what has Revelation done to the church, for the most part? 
It's left us in confusion. It's left us in fear. It's done all the very things that the enemy wanted to do because Jesus said the opposite. Because God said the opposite. This is why I gave it to you. So you wouldn't be in fear. You wouldn't fear the things that are coming. That you wouldn't be, you know, unknowing of what's happening. And at the same time, what's the very thing that the church has done? They've done the opposite. And then verse 3, it says, it's a blessing to those who study it. And but... Um, I also think that part of that is that God wanted us to see and have a hope. If you look at the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament. If you look at the Old Testament, let's start there. If you look at the Old Testament and you read just the Old Testament, like the Jews do, the Tanakh. Remember, the Pentateuch is just the first five books of the law. The Tanakh is the whole of the Old Testament. So when they read the Tanakh, what are they? What do they talk about the most? What are they left with? What is the hope that God left them with? Messiah. The Messiah is coming. But if you read just the New Testament and you take Revelation out of it, there's no hope there. It's just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do this. Paul's very good at laying down, like, okay, you're free. You're not, you're not subject to the law. But you still have to do these things. These are things that still, you know, you have to not just change your actions and your mind, but you have to change your heart. Okay. But you're left with a lot of do's and don'ts. But Revelation ties the whole thing together and says there's a reason for it. There's a purpose to live for. There's something greater to look at. And it brings a hope to, I mean, how many of us sit there and go as a Christian, well, there's no heaven. Hopefully none of us. (laughs) Hopefully we look at this and we say, there is a heaven. There is a, a, a new heaven and a new earth. And we get to, you know, be a part of it. And yes, there will be a tribulation, but we don't have to endure it. And God will come back for us. And He will rise up, you know, uh, those on the earth and those that are, that are asleep. And so He's going to do these things. And it gives us a hope, something. It ties it all together and gives us a purpose for why we do what we do. And I think that's, a, that's an important aspect that we have to continue to remember. Um, what we're doing. Now, lots of people have lots and lots of ways to look at the Old Testament. Hopefully you read through some of these um, these views. Like the preterist view is really about it's already happened. This has already taken place. You know, when we look at the scriptures, if you look at Paul, he writes, um, some people will say, 50% of his writings include Old Testament references. Either directly or an illusion. And yet Paul, Peter, um, John does that too, but they're all illusions. And to me, it's sort of like the difference between a PhD intellectual and a public school educated person writing. You know, when you, when you have somebody who's like Paul, who is of the top 1%, if you look at Philippians 3 and he lays out his list, if you've never studied that list of his accomplishments... It's amazing. So he's in the top 1% of the most educated people in Israel. And when he, when he quotes something from the Old Testament, he usually either summarizes it or he, he directly quotes it, right? And he probably did that because he studied it so much. John, on the other hand, had a public education. He was probably educated in the temple like most Jewish boys. And he was a fisherman. And so he didn't you know, study it like Paul did. <clears throat> and yet he makes allusions to all these types of 
of Old Testament because he knows them and he knows they'll elicit the thoughts in people's minds. I like to use this example. If I were to write you a letter and I were to say something to the effect of, and run, Forrest, run. <laughs> All of you would immediately go to that movie. You know the, you know the scene where he's running, they're chasing him, you, and the braces are falling off. The, my braces would never fall. So anyway... <laughs> so, <laughs> and so you know that scene. But if somebody a thousand years from now or two thousand years from now was reading that letter and they went, wow, their forests ran. <laughs> their forests moved. And they missed the illusion that I gave you that you all know, but they wouldn't. And so that's sort of what we're looking at. We're looking at a lot of those types of illusions that John made, but we aren't putting them in context. And my hope is that we can put them in context with the Old Testament so we can really grab a hold of what he was trying to say because it makes so much more sense. So as we look at these, these four major views, the preterist view, and different people have different names for them. This was just one particular one that I thought was good. <clears throat> that they believe that all this took place during Nero's reign, 64, 65 AD. It's all done. Um, these people are typically will go to a replacement theology that the church is the replace uh, the Israel because all the things of Revelation are done already, and it's just it's just the church now that's left. Not not God doesn't love the Jews. He isn't there for the Jews. He's not going to come back for the Jews. He has no desire for them because they blew it. They and God dumped them, and He picked up the church. That's more of the preterist view in a in a very oversimplified way. Uh, the historist view is um, they uh, all the events uh, reflect the prophecies of Revelation. They these are the they're all symbolic. They're allegorical. Um, these are just things that reference something else. They're not really real. They're not literal. Uh, these are the people that often will try to take every common thing that's happening, and it's happened for generations. Like, they only look at, the, at what's happening today, and they try to make a determination of when Jesus is coming back. And they ignore everything that's happened in the past. And so, uh, the Futurist Review, again, is one of those things that uh, all these things are in the future, uh, except for, of course, the, the seven churches, which were real churches. And so, it's from uh, Revelation 4 on, it's about the future, um, and uh, literal and chronological. And I will tell you that I don't believe that all of Revelation is chronological. I don't think it's going to happen exactly that, that format, the way it's laid out. Um, some of this is like Isaiah did. He said, look at the millennium. Oh, and then let's go back and look at how that happened. And this is what led up to, oh, and then we're back to the millennium again. So there's this bounce that takes place. Even in Isaiah's uh, uh, prophecy about the, the end times. And I think there's some of that that might be taking place in Revelation. But we'll, maybe not. We'll look at it. But these people are very, the futurists are very um, chronological and literal. <coughs> um, and so um, the Antichrist will come um, and nations will gang up against Israel. Christ returns. The millennial reign. Satan's released. That type of thing. Uh, the future, the modified futurist is that um, is a post-tribulation rapture, and so again, that brings you back to the place of well, what's the purpose of the rapture? To me, you know, God is very um, 
I mean, we may not get it, but I think God is very logical. And maybe that's only because I like logic. <laughs> you know, but there is a purpose to the rapture. We only look at it and say, oh, this is what's going to happen in the rapture. But there's a purpose for what God wants to do. There's a purpose for everything God does. And if you take and look at those scriptures, and we just took one small segment and looked at it, I think it becomes clearer that the rapture is to get Israel to bow its knee to God. And so why would the church have to go through that? When it says that the 144,000 who are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes are going to be preaching under the seal of protection of God through the rapture to draw the people of Israel back to God. Through the tribulation. Yeah, seven years. What did I say? You said, you said rapture. Oh, I'm sorry. Seven years. Yeah, seven years of rapture. Seven years of tribulation. Thank you. <laughs> seven, so does that make sense? I mean, doesn't that make sense? And so, and then there's the redemptive historical idealist. Uh, that means everything is allegorical. You can make it whatever you want it to be. It becomes anything and everything. And, you know, people take a little bit of this view and a little bit of that view and a little bit of this view and, and they, they, they spread it out. Or we hear, hear these different people saying, and I'm not saying any one of them are right or wrong. I, I tell you what I believe. I told you what I believe. And so I, I believe that... But people have spent their entire lifetime studying this stuff. I'm not going to... I'm not going to, as some old fat guy who's read the Bible a few times, going to tell them that they're wrong. But I don't think that the scriptures bear out a lot of the symbolic and allegorical process that many of some of these people expose. Um, what's the bottom line for tonight? I think the bottom line is that God has a plan. God has a plan for His church. God has a plan for His people. And His people are Israel. His people are Israel. And we get to be a part of that plan to help bring Israel to a place where it bows a knee before God. Because we're there to make them jealous. What, what good would it do for God to leave the church on the earth and we're supposed to be witnessing to the Jew? They're not going to listen to us. They're going to listen to the 144,000 Jews who are going to speak into their life and speak a language they understand and focus and, and they're going to see the protection that God has placed on those 144,000. But the, we get to be a part of what God's plan is. And we shouldn't take it lightly. And it doesn't, just because God is, is there to bring the Jew first, says the gospel was given for the Jew first and then the Gentile, right? But when the Jew rejected him, then the Gentile had to step into it. And we should take that seriously. We should take that as a, as a call from God that we need to be the light on top of the hill. We need to be salt and light in our walk and in our life. Not take it seriously. Because this isn't about us. This is about God's plan. Does that make sense? We are blessed to be a part of this. And so... At thank this you, point, thank you for doing this. Oh, yes, thank and you. I agree with you that churches don't touch Revelation right. ever, and 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 they would miss all this reason that God is after Israel. Yeah. I mean, uh, right? Because 
Thank you. Any anything that I said here, and I went fast, and I'm sorry, and I'm not trying to go fast. I just get excited <laughs> about this stuff, huh? There's a lot to cover. <laughs> there is, and yet we just touched a sliver of it tonight. But I hopefully we I demonstrated or modeled the idea that the Old Testament has so much to offer us into the vision of what Revelation is talking about. And so when we start talking about, you know. This came out of Obadiah, or this came out of Joel, or something like that. I really want to encourage you to go back and study those. Look at those. Because it's going to bring so much more clarity than just kind of this, Ooh, and this is what God will do. Well, why? Because this is what God's going to do. Why? Because He's sovereign. I've heard that more times than I go, yes, He's sovereign. I get it. But there's a reason for what He does. And many times, if you will dig, you will find the treasure of God's purpose. Yeah, I've said many times that you can walk along and, and pick the, the low-hanging fruit. But if you really want the treasure, you've got to dig. Because real treasure is, is buried. And we can dig into the Scriptures, and God will reveal so much for us. So, any questions about anything we talked about tonight? It's probably overwhelming. Sorry. I'm not in a hurry. The 144, they're the Jehovah Witnesses, right? <laughs> That's what they told me when they came to the door. <laughs> okay, so we, we got to back up and we got a long way to go. Just him. I mean, all the rest of us are on track. So any questions about that part? And did you, did I mean, even Isaiah, like, I went through that pretty quick, but I encourage you to go back and read it again. And start looking at it from the aspect of, you know, 2, 1 through 4 is about the millennium. You know, f the rest of that chapter is about the tribulation. 3 is about the tribulation. But cha chapter 4 comes back to the millennium. And look at it from that standpoint and start looking at where does this happen? Because when you start looking at this stuff, all these scriptures keep pointing back to this prophetic timeline that God has. And I think it clarifies it for us in so many different ways. Come on, somebody's got to have some questions. Well, I have a question about, like, if the Jews, I think about this, if the Jews had accepted Jesus when he came, what would the plan have been for the Gentiles? Good question. Not good. How would you answer that? <laughs> I think that we would still be... No, I think we would still, because he came that all men might be saved, yeah. right? Yeah. I think we would still be saved, but it wouldn't be the same way. I think it would be Jewish-led. We would the, the churches would be more Jewish-oriented, the more Jewish-led, and that we would be getting a whole lot more Old Testament teaching, showing the the person of Jesus. And I th I still think that the, the God's plan is that the whole world would be saved. I just think that the order would be the the priority would be different. And that we would actually understand what it means to be grafted in. Yeah. I'm Not, humbled that we're grafted in to start with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think about that and I think, you know, that Paul, you know, with all of his education from the Jewish, that he is able to reason like an attorney writes an argument. Mm -hmm. And so it's very hard to come in. And like you're saying, the differences between the level of education but it's also the way Paul is able to write as if, 
you know, at that higher level that an attorney wouldn't be able to tear apart his argument because mm -hmm. it is so structured mm -hmm. and it has so much education and history and all of, all of that that he is able to tie the Jewish history together for us. Well, who was it? Was it Blackaby who wrote one of the first training manuals for lawyers in the United States? And he used Paul's letters to show how to craft a legal argument for something. And I think it was, was it Blackaby? He practicing as President Blackaby. Huh? It might have been Blackburn. Or Blackburn, maybe, no. or something like that. But he wrote a book for lawyers. They used it up until the middle 1900s, and that's what the main book they used to train lawyers on how to how to craft an argument in court that would be legally sound. And they used Paul's letters uh, to do that training. And I forgot who the it started with a B, Black something. Um, so I, I can't remember who it was, but I thought that was very interesting. Anything it's a little else? rabbit trail, but I don't remember who was talking about it. That there were 200 men in Gaza in Hamas that had dreams and visions of Jesus. For the last 20 years, there have been a lot of Muslims who are getting yep. visions and dreams and seeing the person of Jesus show up. It's just testimony after testimony. So God's it's be so own cool is moving. When the rapture takes place, and these. Muslims are gone, <laughs> you know, because they're in the underground church and the Chinese underground church. Yeah. Final thoughts? I just have a question. We going to touch on like what the end time church might look like. Do you think that's going to come up in discussion? Yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Probably not. Question? No, no. Probably not for a while because we have to kind of get through some of the yeah. the the first three chapters of of Revelation are going to be instructive towards that. I think, um, but we'll 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 work through that process. Okay. Okay. I'm just. I mean, I don't want to do this in this whole. T you know, I don't want to do Revelation in six weeks. You know, it's just not possible. So it's going to be a while. So, you know, come and go as you like. But this, I, hopefully this has been worth your time and you've gotten something out of it. And I appreciate your coming to it. Um, Didn't you tell us there's going to be two weeks off, but I'm looking here and it looks like only one. Well, we're going to meet the 7th, 14th, 21st, but then we're not going to meet again until January. So I think the week of Christmas and the week of New Year. Am I, am I missing my calendar? So, oh, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Is it, well, I look at this 21st, 28th, 28th, the 4th, that's two weeks. But it's not two Thursdays, it's just one Thursday. Okay. Does that make sense? Well, you know, is the 21st, is the 21st too close to Christmas? Or what are you going to get me? <laughs> a really good Bible study. <laughs> I was really hoping to kind of get through chapter one before we took the Christmas break, but if